And when you give somebody the cheapest price, I don't care how good they are, when they have a claim, you don't like them anymore. Welcome to the Not Unreasonable Podcast. I'm your host, David Wright, an actuary and reinsurance broker. This is a show of interviews with people who have something to teach us about managing our businesses and ourselves. There's a lot to learn out there, folks, so let's get to work. This show is brought to you by Beach, where I work and have worked my entire career. We are a global reinsurance intermediary, and we pride ourselves on creative thinking, deep analysis, and client service. Those three qualities are actually intimately related because you can't spend the energy digging deep into a problem unless you really care about the client. We find that when you really do understand the problem, the solution becomes obvious, even if it seems a little bit unorthodox to the outside world at first. The nature of insurance is to take solutions we know and trust and try to force them onto the problems of the day. We just don't settle for that. You can see further at beachgp.com. I sometimes think of insurance as a morality game. The problem of assessing and pricing risks is so hard that we all fall back on human concepts of fairness and relationships to guide our actions. Think about the oldest of old school underwriters. They build relationships. They fight claim swindlers and predators to the death. They're unscrupulously honest and fair. Maybe the most fundamental quality for humans is trust. And the thing that great underwriters are great at is figuring out who is worthy of that trust and nurturing it. Rick Lindsay is, to me, the embodiment of humanity and in insurance. His insurance isn't about technology and data transfer and machine learning. Unfortunately, I lost some of the beginnings of this interview, in particular one part where he tells a story about fighting a lawyer on a $75,000 homeowner's claim and winning, but at the cost of $700,000 of expenses. He'd do it again every time. Rick is the CEO of Prime Insurance Company, and he is Old Testament. He understands a few really big ideas better than the rest of us and has the force of personality to show us the way. I'm calling him our spirit guide, and here's why. My approach is to have not the cheapest price, but the price that if you had a claim tomorrow or 10 years from now, my price would be adequate because I rated on a marathon approach rather than a sprint approach. Everybody's quoting everything every year trying to be the cheapest. And if you want me to be the cheapest, I just tell you I'm not going to be the cheapest. Go buy the cheapest, and, and you'll get what you pay for. Uh, how do you, how do you convince them to come in the door in the first place? Because you know the point you were making earlier about how most people just buy on price. Clearly, you've identified either customers that don't think like that, or a way of convincing them to not think that way. How, how do you do that? Well, I mean, that's two different groups, right? The the people who pay more, I've insured for 35 years. Yep, so they're getting a good deal now. Yeah, they, they, they know the value, right? The new guys, in most cases, we're getting them when other people think they're a poor risk. I call them the land of the misfit toys. Yep. Right? I mean, a year ago, this guy was the best trucker in the world, and everybody was undercutting each other to ride it. Then he has a bad patch, and now nobody wants to ride him, mm-hmm. right? So at that point, I'm not doing it on competition. I'm providing a solution. And, you know, there's no doubt it's adequately priced because I'm not going to, you know, take a risk nobody else would and be cheaper, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to look you in the eye and say, look, I'm, 
I'm, gonna, I'm willing to ensure you when nobody else will. If you'll do these things and if you'll do this, being a good partner, and if you have a claim, you got to report it immediately so we can get on it and manage it effectively. And if you'll do those things, I'll ensure you. And if you do them well, I'll give you a credit the first year. And if you do them well again, I'll give you another credit. And so over time, I will bring their rate down in hopes that I can keep them. Because if I, if I charge somebody who can't get insurance anywhere else an extreme price and think I'm going to keep getting that when they perform for me, yeah. I'm, I'm an idiot. Yeah. They are going to be able to get cheaper insurance. And even if I insure you at 40000 a truck and over three years I get you down to twenty or 18, guarantee you somebody's going to come in at 15 and beat my price. So I'm never going to, you know, be able... But at that point, I think I've built enough of a relationship with you that you understand, well, I can go to the cheaper guy, but that's not that's not a safe zone for me. I feel safer where I'm at. Right? Yeah. How do you pick the numbers? So how do you pick the 40000 or whatever it is and then the credits? I mean, what do you, what's the pricing process? I mean, most people, including our government, uses actuaries. Of course. Right? I don't use actuaries. I'm an actuary, by the way. So. Sorry. <laughs> I tell people That's I don't okay. like actuaries and I don't like lawyers. <laughs> well, hopefully but, I'm you know, better than you expected. I, I, got, I got lots of friends that are actuaries and lots of lawyers that are friends. So um, anyway, you know, I think that, uh, you know, to me, I, I, uh, the only show I really watch anymore is Shark Tank. Okay. And I think it's, you know, fascinating how some people go in there and they're, you know, really, really good, and other people really shouldn't even be on the show, Yeah, right? And I always look at it, and, and you know, every other business, you're, you're, you're not asking somebody else to tell you what your product is worth, right? If you go out and you develop a product or whatever, you figure out how much you can charge. Yep. Right? Insurance is the only business where we, you know, say, okay, I want to write, you know, Autos in California tell me how to be $700 cheaper than Geico. Yep. Right? So, again, to me, that's the competitive game where, you know, there's not a lot of value to people. There's not a lot of value to me. It's a commodity-driven deal, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not in commodity-type businesses. And so, you know, what we do is we use common sense, right? First thing I ask you is let me see what you had. I know I was paying eight grand a truck. Okay, let me see your claims. Right? Right. And then it's really the claims that drive it. I have, yep. you know, seven years ago, if we rode a trucker, within one year he would be gone with somebody else. The auto market continues to get tighter and tighter and tighter. So now we're renewing people for the seventh, eighth year. Hmm. And again, every year I ask them, how did we do on your claims? Because that's all I care about. Yeah, I want my insured to tell me you guys were great. You know, you, you talked to us about the claims, you kept us informed about them, and we agreed with with the result, right? Mm-hmm. With what you did. What I hear from everybody else, I say, what happened on that claim on your lawsuit? I don't know. Well, did you know they were going to pay it? I, I didn't know they paid it. Yeah. Right? The first thing I knew was on my loss run. Yeah. Well, why did they pay it? I don't know. I wish they wouldn't have. They shouldn't have paid it. So, again, as a company, we need to have a relationship with our insured where, you know, they feel confident. And, uh, you know, I think in most cases, 
insureds are intimidated and scared because they're being sued. It's uncomfortable. And then their insurance company doesn't communicate with them, right? Your insurance company should be, you should be contacting them the minute you have a claim. What do most people do the minute they have a claim? They think, should I or shouldn't I report this? Yeah. Most people don't report stuff because they know there's a downside. I tell people, I am not going to punish you for reporting claims. I will cancel you for not reporting claims because you're not letting me do my job. Mm. Right? My job is managing claims. You said that insurance companies have lost their way. It's a way of I think it's a way you characterized this point about taking the high the, the hard road or the easy road and more in your mind or taking the easy road. It, that's something you think has changed over time? What what uh, how what made you put it that way? Well, I mean, if you look back in the 1980s when I was, you know, a young man in this business, lawyers were just really getting able to advertise. Yeah. Right? They, they weren't Maybe allowed the cause to of the liability crisis. Yeah. And so now, you know, now it's, I mean, it's worse than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much money lawyers spend on TV ads, nice. but everywhere I go, they got to be the... They got to spend more dollars than anybody else, mm. right? You got all these guys. Every town you go to, there's five or six of them, and they're on the airways all the time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, I think the, you know, and there's certainly no shortage of lawyers, and more and more coming out all the time. So, I do think that you know, a plaintiff, if 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 he's trying to bring a frivolous lawsuit, he'll go to some lawyers, and they'll say, you know what, you don't have a good case, but he can eventually find a lawyer that will pretty much take any case. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's my opinion. I might be wrong. But, you know, the lawyers and the legal system is out of control because the insurance companies have taken the easy road for years and years and years. Now, obviously, there's, you know, physician mutual companies and some other insurance companies who do make money who do know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in most cases, it's people who are more invested, right? It's like physicians running their own uh, med yes. mal company. Right. And they know that that allegation is bullshit, yeah. right? Where an insurance guy in London, you know, like on my homeowner's claim, the, the thing I say is, if I would have had to convince London to fight that Katrina case, the... the, the uh, hurricane case we took to trial they would have never done it Hmm. because they're all the way over in london they're too far removed from the business and so you know i I, again i issued lloyd's paper and the claims management and the way they want to manage claims is totally different than the way i want to and um why why so actually here here's a thought one of the things that i think has changed about the business and I've only been in the business for 15 years or so, but I think that's become a little bit less local. And so there's some relief from state regulation in in before in and before the 80s that allowed for bigger insurance companies. And those are more national insurance companies. They're larger organizations where I think that your perspective or your strategy, which is do, do the harder things, and, and I think quite a lot, I mean, I wonder how much of that's driven by your personality. And how hard that is to replicate across a large organization, right? So right. people who are far away and big and maybe not that invested, the point you made in the outcome. You know, if the company makes money or loses money, you know, I care, but I don't care as though, like, I'm making money or losing money for myself right. personally. Right. So do you think it's because insurance companies are bigger that they don't care and you're in a smaller company? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everybody thinks bigger is better. And, you know, my own personal banks, whoever, I don't care if you're big or small. I just want you to be personal. Yeah. I want you to understand me, right? And so, you know, everybody um, says they're that. Right? Of course. So there's, there's a big bank in Utah that, you know, years back I had a $5 million line of credit with. And in 08, I had the opportunity to buy Prime and become the majority owner. And they said, oh, sorry. they said, if you do that, we're calling your loan. Really? And I'd known them for like 20 years, right? And they'd been my bank. And I said, you know what? If, if you or what you say you are, you should know that this is the best move I could ever make in my life, mm. right? Uh, and if, if, if you don't support me, you know, I know that you don't understand me and you won't ever be my bank again. Yeah. And so they called the loan, you know, I went to a, another smaller bank, right? I'd have taken a bigger bank too. I don't give a, I don't <laughs> care how big or small they are. You just want them to get you. Yeah. Right. I've been with that bank since 2008. Now the big bank calls me every month. Yeah. Everyone, I tell them, I say, you know what? You guys ought to take me off your call list because I know when when I really need you, you're not going to be there for me. Yeah. And so I don't think it's a, I think it's harder as you get bigger, right? But you know, I have over 130 employees now, and I can tell you they all get it, mm. right? They're all on board, and I've had a lot of employees who don't get it, right? They'll take my paycheck. They'll, you know, come to work every day and do it, but they think it's all, you know, it's different than what I did at XYZ Company, right? We looked at the book, and the book said, you know, increase limit factor to go from yep. 300000 to a million is 30%. Yep. You know what? When I'm risking my money and I'm increasing your limit from 300000 to a million, my math says that's three times as much coverage. Yeah. So why would I only charge you 30% more? And the answer is, is because that's what the industry manuals say. Yeah. Right? I don't, I, you know, I don't. And oftentimes when you start asking questions about that, and, and here I'll criticize the actuarial profession because not necessarily what they do is unreasonable, but that it's opaque. Right? So you start asking questions. It's very hard to know. Right. Really, really, where did that come from? Where are they, all the assumptions that went into that that made that a logical th- made that a logical outcome and a, and a reasonable conclusion? And you know, and you might be like, "Well, that's nonsense, that one." But nobody right. sees that, right? right? So you just sort of put your faith in this, you know, spaceless right. mechanical process that happens somewhere else. Yeah, no, and you know, because everybody else is doing it. We have, you know, we have an actuary, and obviously the state actuaries review our numbers and yep. stuff. So, you know, over time, right, we've convinced people that the way we do it does work and can work but you know back in the 80s and the 90s you know the actuaries were very very nervous mm. right they the, well they had no idea what's going yeah, on yeah they, they just take, take that know, manual whatever information you have and you know they try and put it in the system and then when it doesn't work out that way you know it's obvious oh this change and that change you didn't write these people you didn't write as much in this state as you projected and mm-hmm. so now, again, I, I think that most people overuse actuaries. That's my own personal opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a contractor, you're, you know, 
you know your business, right? You don't know your business and then go to somebody and say, hey, we, we want to be cheaper. Tell us how we can be cheaper. Okay, don't don't go below 35 on the age. Stay above that, and that'll help you. And, you know, to me, all of that's kind of hocus-pocus because, again, you have 2,500 other insurance companies out there doing everything else, you know. And so your plan isn't going to be executed the way that you think it is because you don't know what the competition's doing. And if you did yesterday, they can change tomorrow. So, you know, rather than being aggressive and attacking business, our model is we're going to sit back and we're going to look for opportunities with people who are being thrown into the land of the misfit toys mm-hmm. for whatever reason, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I, I had a call within the last couple of weeks, these bubble ball games. Have you seen those the bubbles that people get in? Yeah, yeah. They run into each yeah. other and stuff. Looks like fun. Some Well, some big insurance company, I'll leave them unnamed. And, you know, we, we haven't written any of that because they provided coverage, a million-dollar limit for 500 bucks. Wow. Didn't matter how big your league was. Didn't matter how many balls you had. It was just, yeah. you know, somebody thought they were making money. And so now they're coming to us for quotes. And the guy's here in New York that runs it. And, you know, $10,000 is probably the cheapest you can actually. I mean, it's a sports league. Yeah, right, right. right. And you now have quadriplegics from it where sure. people, you know, the they have suspenders. It's yeah, it's violent. Well, yeah. and they have suspenders so that's supposed to stay above your head, but yeah. people don't wear the suspenders sure. right, so it falls down, and yeah. then they end up hitting heads. And so it doesn't matter what business you're in; you are going to have serious injuries and claims. Mm-hmm. You are, and you know if you're getting really, really cheap insurance, you know, and again, they didn't have a long view, right? This whoever's behind the bubble ball thing should have said, you know, do we want to be like a flash in the pan and then be out of business because of all the problems we have? And that's really they're telling me we can't afford your insurance, and I'm like, that's not my problem, yeah, you know, because you got cheap insurance for the past five years. You know, I would have never given you that insurance for yeah. five hundred. You designed months. your business around it, and now you're in a hole. Right. So maybe we can talk a little bit about Prime itself. So you 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 bought the company in two thousand and eight. That's that must have been an amazing transition for you. Uh, how did that opportunity come about? And and well, the ori- the original shareholders were very very wealthy Wall Street guys. John Orb was chairman emeritus of Smith Barney. Duke Chapman had been general counsel of the New York Stock Exchange and. You know, guys that, I mean, when I was trying to raise money, I was trying to get a board. Yeah. And I thought, man, if I had these guys in my board, I could I could raise money. Yep. Right? Well, it doesn't help you raise money. Right. I mean, you have billionaires on your board. Everybody okay. you go to says, why don't they just give you the money? Yeah, yeah. Right? And the reality <laughs> was they were all in their 80s and 90s, and they're not writing checks anymore. They're mm-hmm. trying to get their investments out. So I did have one, you know, shareholder, Ray Roberts, who continued to put money in but he got alzheimer's and i mean he'd have given me money forever and until he got alzheimer's and he was out of the game mm. so in 08 when everything crashed my board came to me and said look you need to go hire an investment banker we need our money out right so we went did the whole deal you know city group all of them gave us proposals and then we get down to the you know deal we have and it's a crap deal. Mm-hmm. It's like 1.4 a book. And I'm like, 
that's that's not attractive. So I went to the board and I said, look, I can't, you know, I can't buy you out today, but I'll pay you a fourth now, cash, and then the next three years I'll pay you the remainder mm-hmm. and I'll pay you 8% interest. Well, in 08, interest rates were, you know, 8% interest. Pretty good deal. Good, right? yeah. But, you know, them believing that I could do it was, and if I hadn't had the relationship with them, they'd have just said no. Yeah. They'd have said, just, you know, take the 1.4 book and we're out of here. And then I'd have been working for somebody else. So anyway, the next three years, we started hitting it out of the park and we were able to pay them off easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at that point, I went up to... Uh, 80% ownership. Currently, I own 52% of the voting stock, and I will not drop below. Right. You know, <laughs> That's going to stay that way. Yeah, no, it's, I wouldn't, you know, if if I, if I had done it in a traditional way, and I had partners and people, it, it would have, you know, wouldn't ever worked out the way that it has, in my opinion, and, you know, I worked with my dad for the first 15 years of my life, and he taught me a lot, and it was great, but we had totally different views. You know? mm. I had the view that I needed my own insurance company to show what we can accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he didn't want to take risk. Right. Right? And so, you know, and I didn't have a lot of money in 95. Basically scraped up $700,000 to buy 5% of Prime that the old manager had and so you know I started out with 5% and over time worked my way up to 80% and now I have two shareholders that own non-voting and voting stock uh, so out of all the stock I think I own 47 or somewhere around there but voting stock it's, it's 52. Did your behavior change at all when you went from manager but not Majority owner to majority owner. Did something change about the way you managed the business? Maybe, maybe, maybe even looking back, did you have a different perspective which affected your behavior in any way? Do you think? Were you no. more conservative, less conservative? No, or? I think I got you know over time as stuff worked. You know, I got more convinced that you know the way we were doing stuff, which was contrarian. Yes, right. right Everything exactly. we do is the opposite yeah. of what people say you should do. You know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You know, you can't write there. Um, we did nursing homes in Florida and Texas back in the 90s when nobody else would, and nursing homes were getting sued left and right, and everybody else canceled them. And, you know, we rushed in and had great relationships, had great lawsuits and great success stories with people that, you know, we, we fought lawsuits and won. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the only way you get good settlements is if, you know, they think you these guys, these guys yeah. are actually going to kick our ass. Yeah. Right? So then they'll settle for a reasonable number. But you got to pick your battles. You can't, you know, you can't take crappy cases to trial. And we've, you know, we've handled over 200,000 lawsuits. I've been to the Supreme Court in California. Hmm. Sains versus Whitewater Voyages is a case in the 80s. Everybody said we were going to lose. And now it's cited nationwide. We had a case in Michigan where um, lawyers sued us, claiming our policy was illusionary, and you know wanted to take us to the cleaners. The Supreme Court 
of Michigan, in their ruling, said Prime's policy is the most unambiguous, clear policy we've ever read. Right. <laughs> and gave us a defense verdict. So, again, you know, I think it's just keeping it simple, common sense, doing the right thing, right, which in many cases means you take the hard road, not the easy road, mm. and then you end up where you want to be instead of where you shouldn't be. Well, one, one way of that I think about this perspective, and I love it, is, is you're thinking for yourself, right? Right. That is something that I think people are always surprised is of how rare it is, how hard it is to find in other people, and and genuinely being, you know, having an intuitive approach to problems and saying, like you said earlier, well, how is it running? Like, let me see your claims and let's talk about this and, and and just think about it for a minute and come up with something that just sort of makes sense. And that's usually gets you really far down the road. Right. It's rare. How do you find people that can implement your business model? Because yeah. I got to think it must be tough finding right. the talent. Well, I mean, again, I, you know, I think I've been really lucky in finding good people. My CFO, uh, my COO, my president, general counsel, I mean, they're, you know, again, obviously I went through other people before them, right? right? And I would say the biggest challenge was, you know, I hire traditional underwriters and I try and get them to think outside of the box. Yeah. And, you know, they, they don't get it. So my... You know, I've had good luck finding people that are in similar, like, some of my best underwriters I hired from Blue Cross Blue Shield, hmm. and I moved them to Utah, and they don't have all the baggage of a PNC underwriter. One hmm. of my underwriters that trained me, he's a book underwriter, right? He goes to the ISO manual, and if I challenge him on something, he'll say, I got three times book, or I got three times the manual rate, Yeah, right? And I'm like, well... That, you know, that doesn't really it has impress nothing me. Nothing to do with it. right. You know, you think that's your bar, yeah. Right, and so I remember back when I was doing the mountain guides and the river runners. The manual said you should charge per boat, per horse, and my theory was, you know, if you have ten boats or twenty boats, if you have more boats, you can probably keep the boats in better condition, right? So why would I penalize you and charge you by boat? Mm-hmm. Right, and a more accurate way of charging is per head, how many people you put down the river or put in a boat, and how many days they're on it. So, mm-hmm. I came up with this guest day rate instead of per unit rate. Yep, and you know I was making it up, fifty cents a guest day, bucket. I didn't ask anybody, and over time, you know, I adjusted it and and made it work. But um, you know that made sense to the outfitters. Right, and I could tell them, look, sure. you know, if you do a thousand more people, it's eighty cents a day. Oh, insurance right? makes sense to people, and that's right. the thing that that bothers me a lot about it. And one of the things I've been thinking about recently is how poorly insurance, I think, is probably communicated to people who are buying it. They don't understand it, and nobody's really trying to help them understand it because right. maybe the people who are selling it don't understand it. Wow. Entirely possible. Right. Well, right? I think they understand. You know the policy form, but okay, I don't right. think they understand the whole game, right. right? And the the way that different people can you know manipulate it and change your numbers. I mean, when I used to look at people's loss runs and they had a million two in losses, you know, just my knowledge of claims and claims people, there's some profit in there, mm. 
Right? Either you paid a lawyer way too much. I mean, I remember the first case we paid a million dollars on when I was like 19, the carrier did. We spent a half a million dollars pretending like we were going to fight this claim, and I wanted to fight it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they paid it, and I, that right then I said, rule number one, if I'm going to pay, I'm just going to go pay. Yeah. I'm not going to waste money and time. Right. right. The posturing. Yeah. yeah threats. And, you know, if if you're going to spend money, it's an investment, mm. right? And, and you might, like on the Katrina case, we spent way more than the house was worth. But we had 50 other cases after we won that case that just went away. That if we wouldn't have won that case, you'd had 50 additional nightmares. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's a marathon, long view, being a partner with your insureds instead of being the cheapest, and the minute shit hits the fan, you cut bait and run, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's kind of an oversimplification, but I think that's how most people feel about insurance. They've told me that. I paid those guys money for 15 years, never had a claim, then I have a claim and they cancel me. Yeah. And I tell them, well, you were probably with the wrong company. Yeah. Right? You should have checked them out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So you were working in insurance at 19, when, what, what year did you begin, actually? Well, I mean, I was actually stuffing envelopes when I was 12 for my dad's right. GA because, <laughs> you know, we used to market to 11,000 agents in the West, and then I started... Um, what sort of business was that? Was your dad was, underwriting? It was... He owned a life and health company in Utah and Arizona, which right. I never really got involved with, but we had Carolina Casualty, Canal... Great Southwest was a company in Arizona. Doing transportation? Well, everything, yeah. Transportation, special events. I mean, my dad insured Evil Knievel's Jump of the Snake Canyon. Okay. And I remember going up there when I was 12 years old. And I remember, you know, the big thing was, you know, and there was a lot of people there. And they made them put up two chain link fences so that people couldn't fall into the the river gorge. And the minute, you know, he took off... And the parachute came out. He, you know, went down towards the river, and the parachute, the the motorcycle jet, was hanging below the parachute, and it came back towards the side of the canyon where you couldn't see it. Right. So everybody ran right over both chain link fences. Wow. <laughs> it took like two seconds for the whole thing to go down. But hmm. um, you know, the I thought there would be people killed and all kinds of bad stuff, but there were only two lawsuits from that. One was from the outhouse company. You know, in the old days, they had the um, wood outhouses, not the plastic ones. Okay. And the motorcycle gangs tore them all apart, created a big bonfire, and created a ramp to jump their bikes over the bonfire the night before. So the, you know, porta potty company made a claim for all of their porta potties. And then a young lady got pregnant that night, and she sued the event because she got pregnant. And, you know, I was so young. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to the claims, but, you know, that was, those were the, you know, extent of the claims from that event. So uh, we're out of time here, but maybe we can close talking a bit about what, uh, what you, how you think you can grow this business. Because that's the thing that I, uh, fascinates me again is that so much of this seems to emanate from your personality, the combativeness with the claims, the, this philosophy of, 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 I mean, it's a simple thing. It's kind of doing the doing the hard road instead of the easy road. But also, I think 
the intuitive approach to making good decisions about the the actual risks. These are things which which are I think hard to find. How how do you grow that company? How do you grow it? Well, I mean, last year I think we did sixty million, or two years ago last year we did one hundred and thirty. This year I think we'll do two hundred or maybe one hundred and eighty. And to me, it's not us; it's the market. Okay. Right. It's the other people getting out of stuff that creates it coming to us, and we can underwrite it and evaluate how we're going to manage the claims. And you know, it's really people, right? I gotta, I gotta hire other good people. That's mm-hmm. what I tell all my good people: is you need to hire an apprentice and start mentoring them, so that you know you duplicate yourself. And, yep. And that's what I think. You know, I'm doing all the time. So. And, you know, as we write business around the country, we go to all the shows. Um, you know, we physically, as I said, visit our insureds. So yep. when I go to Kansas City to visit an insured, on the way out here, we stopped at Motor City Dream Cars, which they rent exotic cars. And he rented a Ferrari to a guy that killed another guy. So it's a big claim, mm-hmm. and we don't want to pay it. We want to fight it. So we stopped to meet with him to discuss the claim, and it's going very well, right? Is it true you you fly a helicopter? Yeah, and you fly a helicopter everywhere. Well, no, I, almost I everywhere. Fly, I flew the helicopter down to Florida and up the East Coast from Utah. I, yeah, flew okay, it around the country. <laughs> and I, you know, it's, it's how long is it? Is it faster than a regular airplane? I mean, it's slower. No. It must be much slower. I mean, it's faster than a single engine okay. small plane. Right. right, it goes about 150 knots. Okay, so. Um, you know, it's it's you can't fly it for more than an hour or two, but okay. it makes it convenient to stop and I see, see which is kind of your point because you're going right. to stop at your insureds and you right. and you see them all that way. Right. And you know, we 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 go by agents, right? Every town I'm in, if I'm driving to an insured and there's a farmer's agent or a nationwide agent or an, I pull in, right? And I tell them, look, you guys are shoving business down the road to your competitor. You should be sending it to us. And most of them, you know, have I mean, a lot of people just give it up, right? Because <laughs> they, they send stuff in, and a month later, they don't have an answer. What I tell people is, if you get me a complete submission, we'll give you a quote the same day. But mm-hmm. I have to talk to the insured. Mm-hmm. If I can't talk to the insured, I'm not. But So I hired a new gal here in uh, New Jersey. Um, one of my underwriters from Utah is out here with her for the next two weeks, training her. She actually was an underwriter at one of our local producers here, and things changed for her. You know, we know her, she knows us, and she gets our our strategy. So as we continue to expand, you know, I do meet good people. I do meet producers and underwriters who are as frustrated as I was yeah. with the inflexibility, right? We have a lot of flexibility to do pretty much whatever makes sense, and that's what underwriters like. Do you do you ever do you ever turn a, a client down after you have the conversation with them? Hear something you don't like? What would that be? Oh yeah, no, I call it lying, cheating, and stealing. If they I do one of those things, I can't underwrite lying, cheating, or stealing. And how do you detect that in, in this interview you have with a client? Well, what do you I mean, ask obviously. When you, you know, ask people, they can be lying to you. Yeah, right. right. You say, what are we going to do if this happens? What, what what are you doing here? What are you doing there? And so, you know, you, you make a judgment call, right? It's like when people call me up and say, I can't make my payment. Will you give me some rope to, or some options, you know? And I then my 
a lot of times my people say, you shouldn't do that. And I say, you know what? I believe in people, right? Mm-hmm. Eight out of ten people are good people, right, if you're dealing with the right people and you're talking to them. If you never have face on them, then they can throw you under the bus real easy. Yep, yep. Right? So you know, I give people the benefit of the doubt until they've proven me wrong. And so when we go visit insureds, we cancel about one out of 15. Really? Yeah, because they're not what they said they were. Mm. Right? He said he had five trucks. You pull up, there's 15. Do you tell them that right there? Or oh, you, yeah. Oh, really? That's yeah. the hard road. Yeah. You told me this. I'm canceling you. And they're like, are you yeah. serious? Yeah. Like, I'm serious. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, lying, cheating, and stealing. It. I can't underwrite that. I can underwrite anything on the planet except, you know, not reporting. You know, yeah. lying about how many trucks you have. Lying about, you know, how you're going to operate. My guest today is Rick Lindsay. Rick, thanks for joining me today. You bet.